0: The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 16, The Agony of the Ministry, from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4-10. through Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. This morning we take the balance of those ten verses we didn't complete last week. You'll remember our theme is the task of the ministry. And we gave attention to three aspects of it in our message last week. The dignity of that task, we are workers together with God. We are ministers of God. The dignity of the task. The second thought was that of the urgency of the task. For he hath said, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. There's an urgency about our task. We concluded briefly with a thought on the gravity of it, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. But this morning, in detailed study, and I want you to have your New Testaments open at this passage, for we're going to deal not only verse by verse, but word by word. We're dealing with an unusual aspect it's the agony of the task. The agony of the task. From verse 4 onwards. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. Now to capture what the Apostle has in mind in these closing verses of this paragraph, I have deliberately elected to use a word which expresses both pain and pleasure. The Greek word agonia which means a contest for victory. There are aspects of our task which produce the agony of pain. There are aspects of our task, on the other hand, which produce what I'm going to call the pleasure or the agony of joy. So in verses 4 through 10, we have what we're calling the agony of the task. And the apostle analyzes this under three set of experiences with a number of subheadings. And I don't know anything which has introduced me into the real meaning of living the Christian life and serving our glorious Lord as an examination of these words, which Paul doesn't pile up just to make an effect. This is not rhetoric. This is not just redundancy. This is an unfolding, unveiling of what constitutes the very heart of the task to which you're called and committed, Christian brother, Christian friend. Let us then consider, first of all, what I'm going to call the agony of our tribulations in the ministry. The agony of our tribulations. Back to verse 4. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much Patience. Now basic to everything else that Paul has to tell us in this highly autobiographical passage is this word patience or better translated endurance. It seems that everything else that Paul says finds its root in this word patience, endurance. He builds on this all the way through. As William Barclay puts it, it's an untranslatable word. It does not describe the frame of mind which can sit down with folded hands and bowed head and let a torrent of trouble sweep over it in passive resignation. It describes the ability to bear things in such a triumphant way that it transfigures them, transmutes them. Chrysostom describes this word as the root of all good, the mother of piety, The fruit that never withers, a fortress that is never taken, a harbor that knows no storm, the queen of virtues, the foundation of right action, peace in war, calm in tempest, security in plots, patience, endurance, a quality we know nothing about today by and large. I'll never forget Hearing a man of God who knew J Hudson Taylor very well, this great missionary pioneer and statesman used to attend the great Keswick Convention. And as he went around the grounds of that convention, talking to young people about the mission field, answering their questions, he was accustomed to say, young man, three qualities for the missionary task, three qualities, the first is patience. The second is patience and the third is patience. This endurance, this ability to stick at the job, this reliability, this dependability which is so absent from Christian living and practice today. Now without that all I have to say this morning falls to pieces. This is the cohesive, this is the sticking element in this entire pyramid of tremendous insight into what God expects of the Christian service. The cement, the sticking quality, the cohesion, or that which is cohesive. Very well then, with that before us, let's look at the agony of our tribulations in the ministry. Only with such God-given endurance can the servant of God face the agony of tribulation. And let's note them one by one. Keep your eye then on the text. Verse 4, afflictions, afflictions. Now Paul has already introduced us to this word in chapter 1 and verse 4, where we read the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulations. That's the same word, same word. It's a term which expresses the sheer physical, the mental, the spiritual pressures that devolve upon a man who's going to go through with God, cost what it will, to do the task to which he's called. If ever there was a man under such pressure, it was the Apostle Paul. He speaks then of afflictions. Necessities. This is an accurate translation of the word. The word just means that, necessities. And the reference here is not only to the indispensable requirements of life, such as food and clothing and homes and so forth, but means something deeper than that. The inescapable experiences of life which a person must face. As one writer comments, the greatest of these is sorrow. The greatest of these is sorrow. For only the life that has never known love will never know sorrow. Then of course there is death, which unavoidably comes to every man. All these and more are the necessities of life. And if in God, the Holy Ghost, by his indwelling I have endurance, I can face afflictions, necessities, whatever they are. They're part of our tribulations in the ministry, the agony of the task. Afflictions, necessities, look again, distresses. This word means a narrow place, a narrow place. Life has its moments when a person feels shut in, almost suffocated. Such an experience can easily lead to frustration and depression, unless we know the endurance of God in our lives. Now these first three words are closely related in terms of experience, if you notice, and describe what I'm calling the internal conflicts of the Christian life. The internal conflicts of the Christian life. Afflictions, they're inner. Necessities, inner. Distresses, inner. Conflicts of the Christian life. Then follow a second group. Will you notice them? The external conflicts of the Christian life. Here they are, stripes, stripes. The stripes were of two kinds, from the Jewish whips and from the Roman rods. But of the five scourgings with the Jewish whip, whips, not one of them is mentioned in the Acts. And only one of the three scourgings from the Roman rods I mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, which is tremendously significant. Dr. Luke, who traveled with Paul most of the time, doesn't even record these stripes, these scourgings. We're therefore left to speculate on the agony which the great apostle must have suffered before his ultimate martyrdom. In the case we cast that aside as being irrelevant today, I want to tell you, as one theologian has recently mentioned himself being a great mystery statesman as well, that possibly in no other century have there been more martyrdoms for Jesus Christ than our own century. There are still Christian countries, yes, and non-Christian countries in particular, where to stand the ground for all that we believe involves physical agony. Stripes, imprisonments... Look again. These naturally follow stripes. For having been beaten, the poor victim was then thrown into prison for confinement and further abuse. Paul was frequently in prison. Indeed, Clement of Rome tells us that Paul was in jail no fewer than seven times. And from the Acts of the Apostles, we learn that he was imprisoned before he wrote to the Corinthians. Yes, that was in Philippi. Later on, you remember, in Jerusalem, then Caesarea, Then finally in Rome, imprisonments. And one can only think of how many, many of our dear brethren, yes, and sisters too, are in prison this morning while we worship in this sanctuary with all the comfort and all the affluence of our own land. There are people in Siberia, in Russia, in communist held countries, in Vietnam this morning who are in prison. Our tribulations for the ministry and with that we read of tumults look again please tumults once more these were the normal occurrences in the life of Paul both up to this time and for years afterwards the Greek also suggests the idea of insecurity such as homelessness wandering and uncertainty and this is part of our task there is hardly a servant of God who's ever made an impact upon the contemporary world who hasn't been involved in tumults. Reading just recently again into some of the great biographical touches of John Wesley, I was amazed to learn how many times that dear man was dragged through the streets, how many times he was pelted with stones and rocks. George Whitfield, likewise this learned gentleman this erudite scholar this mighty preacher this man who saved Britain from a revolution of blood dragged through the streets because of being involved in tumults so once again we see three words linked together with a common thought they express the external conflicts of the Christian life to the out and out for Jesus Christ is to come into conflict with a world that is at enmity with him And these are all part of the agony of tribulation. Then follows the third group, will you notice, please. Three more, labors, watchings, fastings. What does that word labor mean? Labors is almost a technical term throughout the New Testament for the Christian life. It describes working for Christ to the point of sheer exhaustion. It is the toil which employs all the human powers of spirit, soul, and body. It's a word that's spoken of again and again in terms not only of the apostle but of all Christians who are truly committed to Jesus Christ were called to be fellow laborers with God laborers then the watchings look at that word for a moment this is quite clearly a reference to the sleepless nights which Paul more often than not had to endure sometimes these nights were spent in prayer sometimes in preaching or counseling At other times, in situations of peril or discomfort where sleep would be impossible, the watchings. I wonder if you've ever experienced that, when you just couldn't sleep and you had to get out onto your knees and pray through the night because of the heavy burden that was upon you. I wonder if you've experienced what it is to talk to somebody throughout the hours of the night because there was no time during the day or perhaps to be in a situation where you couldn't sleep if you tried. But it was because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then comes a word which is fascinating here, the fastings. Scholars are disagreed as to what the apostle meant by this word, but it's reasonable to assume that Paul is referring here to voluntary fastings, as well as those occasions in his life when he went hungry for the gospel. Yes, as well as those occasions in his life when he went hungry for the gospel's sake. We do know that Paul was a man of self-denial and sacrifice. We do know that he speaks of bringing his body into subjection to the sovereignty of Christ and with a pugilistic term he says, beating my body, pumbling my body, that I might be brought into subjection lest having preached to others I myself, he says, be disapproved, Dacamos, a castaway. He had learned that in whatsoever state he was therewith to be content, he knew what it was to be abased. He knew how it was to, to abound, how to be full and how to be hungry and empty in fastings oft. Now in the first group, we were thinking of the internal conflicts of the Christian. In the second group, the external conflicts of the Christian. Here I think in these last three labors, watchings, and fastings, we have the vocational conflicts of the Christian. Labors, fastings, watchings, all part of my vocational conflict and battle as I serve Jesus Christ my Lord. These then represent the agony of tribulations in the ministry. But Paul goes on to something else here. Notice very carefully from verse 6. The agony of our obligations... In the ministry. With the tribulations, there are certain moral obligations. And incidentally, all built on that one great rock, endurance or patience in Jesus Christ. But let's follow the same procedure and see what we have here. Verse 6, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. To be an approved servant of God, a man or a woman must be able to face the agony of tribulations. True but he also must be able to face the agony of moral obligations. So Paul gives us a set of nine characteristics which would qualify the minister of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, in case you don't know it, if you're gonna go through with every one of these, they're going to involve you in an agony. For they're not natural to us. They're not the product of an unregenerate, uncrucified life. They only come through prayer and travail And total submission to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in the life. But they're absolutely necessary if you're going to stand that day with a smile on your face because of the glorious smile on the Savior's face. Let's look at them. Here is the first one, pureness. Pureness. Now this was defined by the Greeks as a careful avoidance of all sins against the gods. It's a word that Paul picks out of Greek literature. It's a word that Paul picks out of Greek literature. Someone has commented that in terms of Christian experience, this purity means prudence at its highest tension. I like that. Prudence at its highest tension. The virtue calls not only for chastity of life, but sincerity. Sincerity. Pureness. That transparency of life which commends your Savior. But look again. Knowledge. What is this word? Now, there are both spiritual and practical connotations associated with this word. It certainly means the knowledge of the gospel in all its fullness, but the term also conveys the idea of the knowledge of what you should do. And I'm telling you that's one of the greatest needs today. So many people and Christians at that are just drifting aimlessly, purposelessly. They don't know what their goal is. They don't know where they're going, despite the fact they're Christians. The idea is of knowledge of what a man should do and then doing it. William Barclay, to quote him once again, affirms that this is the knowledge which issues not in the theologian's fine-spun subtleties, but in the action of a Christian man. There is an old Greek maxim which says, The beginning of knowledge is the knowledge of ignorance. He who knows everything in his own eyes really knows nothing. The greatest knowledge a man has is the knowledge of his own ignorance so that he casts himself upon God and in Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thank God, through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, we can acquire not only that spiritual knowledge, but also that practical knowledge which Dr. G. Campbell Morgan describes as sanctified common sense. Pureness, knowledge, Now look at this word. We could stay on this one for the rest of the morning, long-suffering. If there's one obligation from which we cannot escape as ministers of Jesus Christ, then it is the possession and expression of the spirit of long-suffering. The word essentially means patience with people. It is that God-given ability to bear with people when they are misguided and wrong. And even when they're cruel and insulting. As someone has put it, it is courtesy under criticism. Courtesy under criticism. Long-suffering. And then kindness. Paul tells us in his song of love that love suffereth long and is kind. Everybody knows what kindness means. As one commentator says, it is the sympathetic kindliness or sweetness of temper which puts others at ease and shrinks from giving pain. Kindness always wins, even where the finest argument fails. You can debate your point and you can win it and lose the man, but kindness always wins. Kindness always wins. And then right in this wonderful series of tremendous words, pureness, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, Paul puts the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. Now, of course, all moral obligations would be totally unattainable if they were not for the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'm very impressed that Paul doesn't put the Holy Spirit first and Paul doesn't put the Holy Spirit last. He puts the Holy Spirit right in the middle of these words as if to say, you can't detach the person of the Holy Ghost to any one of them, any one of them. When you talk about pureness, you can't have that without the Holy Spirit. Knowledge, you can't have that without the Holy Spirit. Long-suffering, you can't have that without the Holy Spirit. Kindness, you can't have that without the Holy Spirit. And so he says right here, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. As the old hymnist puts it, and every virtue we possess and every conquest won and every thought of holiness are his alone. And then he says love unfeigned, love unfeigned. The fruit of the spirit is love. This is love at its purest and best. There is no play acting here, but the genuine spirit of benevolence and goodwill. And that word unfeigned is interesting. To feign is to play act. To feign is to be unreal. To feign is to hate what you haven't got. But when it's love unfeigned, it's love without hypocrisy, love without play-acting, love without putting it on. It is the love of God to man and love of God to God without restraint or reserve. Now you'll notice that the first six of these words constitute our moral obligation in relation to what we are. What we are. And Paul puts that first, because what we are is far more important than what we do. If what we are doesn't satisfy God, then what we do is worthless. And so he lays down six foundational words concerning our moral obligations, what we are. Then he follows straight away with what we do. And the next three concern what we do. Look at them with me. The word of truth, the word of truth. Now, the reference here is to the declaration of truth. It's nothing to do with the Bible as an objective book or revelation. It has to do with speaking the truth, declaring the truth, to which, of course, Paul had been commissioned and you and I had been commissioned, by life and by lip. As a matter of fact, the secondary thought is that of speaking the truth. As children of God, we should be known for speaking the truth, never exaggerating, never telling half a truth, never twisting what we know to be the facts. Always speaking the truth, the word of truth. If what we are is linked to the Holy Ghost, then what we do has, first of all, this effect of speaking the truth. Then secondly, notice the power of God, the word of truth, the power of God. Paul has already reminded us that we have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels, that the excellency, the power may be of God and not of us. That was chapter 4 and verse 7, you remember. To Paul, nothing was more important than to know the dynamic of God when he had opened his mouth to preach the gospel, the power of God coming through his lips. He'd already reminded these Corinthians, you remember, that when he came to them initially, he did so with much weakness, in fear, in much trembling, as far as human powers were concerned. I can just imagine him arriving in that city of Greek culture and wisdom, shaking all over knowing that he was to be confronted with some of the greatest intellects of his day. And he tells them, without any shame, that it was with much fear and in much trembling. And then he adds, But as he came, he said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. And Beloved, this is what I long to know in my life. I'm sure it's what you long to know in your life. I cannot, if it's the word of a mother to junior in the home or of an administrator in his task of handling men or as an executive over his desk to his colleagues or as a professor as he addresses his class or a Sunday school teacher unfolding the truth to hungry students and pupils. The power of God. The power of God, what we are affecting what we do and what we say. The word of truth, the power of God, and thirdly here notice the armor of righteousness. Now here Paul has in mind the panoply of God, of course. He amplifies this in chapter ten and verse four. We'll be coming to that in a few weeks' time. And again in Ephesians six, eleven to seventeen, and one Thessalonians five, eight. Paul is fond of using these terms. Paul believed in a personal devil, you see, and from experience it proved that there was only one way to resist him. So he speaks here, notice, of the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The right hand suggests the offensive weapon of the sword of the spirit, while the left hand the shield of faith to ward off the fiery darts, are the wicked one. These are the weapons of God which are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And I want to tell you that as we go out into the world of today and the devil knowing that his time is short and putting everything into action for this last spell before he receives his final word of excommunication. I want to tell you that we have to be clothed in that armour. We have to know how to sway The power of that sword. We have to know how to use that shield of faith. And it's all here. Part of the moral obligation of a man in the ministry. Here then we have these nine moral obligations which devolve upon every true servant of Jesus Christ. And to attempt to serve our Savior and our Master without these qualifications is to miserably fail. But I want to remind you again that these obligations do not come without agony. They do not come without agony. They come as a result of prayer. They come as a result of soul travel. They come as a result of disciplined Bible study. They come as a result of that unqualified, unrivaled surrender and submission to the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The agony may begin with tears but always concludes with joy. But now we come to a section of this amazing treatment of the Apostle Paul that has arrested my attention more than anything else I've told you this morning. And I doubt if there's anybody here who knows Christianity in all its essence by the indwelling of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who hasn't been stumbled at one time or another by what we're going to call now as the contradictions of our ministry, the paradoxes of our ministry. Look at them with me. We've looked at the agony of tribulation. We've looked at the agony of obligation. But look at the agony of contradiction. The agony of our contradictions in the ministry. And as we go through these, you'll see what I mean. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers yet true from verse onwards. Paul completes this paragraph then with a series of contrasts, or if you prefer, contradictions which face every true Christian worker in the course of his gospel ministry. I care not if you're behind the sacred desk or in the workaday world outside. You'll face them. You'll face them. One of these will fit you at one place or another, and they've cost you agony at times, but I want to tell you they're part of our ministry. Let's look at them one by one, honor and dishonor. Literally, this should read glory and dishonor. Paul knew both, and so must you and I. Sometimes our reputation stands high, but at other times we're utterly unknown or disowned. Sometimes we may be flattered, while on other occasions just as easily we're flattened. And you know it and I know it. So the servant of God must be ready to accept elation and deflation with equal poise and joy. Let me ask you, is that true of your life? Is it true of mine? Can you take dishonor as well as you take honor? Can you take being flattened as well as you take being flattered? Is your poise unaffected when you face that kind of contradiction in your life? We've been talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible without him. Impossible without him. Honor and dishonor. Look again, evil report and good report. In those immortal Beatitudes, you remember Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Rejoice, he says, and be exceeding glad. But master, what do you mean? He says, I mean rejoice and be exceeding glad. When? When men speak falsely of you. Have you got that? Has it struck home to your heart as I've asked God to speak to mine? Nobody can be engaged in Christian service without being subjected to evil reports as well as good reports. Every week of my life, I have to face the agony of this contradiction. And some of you know of well-known evangelists whose whole life is one hopeless contradiction from the outside world Concerning good reports matched by evil reports every day. But look again, deceivers and yet true. This is a hard one. Deceivers yet true. Let us remember that during our Lord's ministry, he, my blessed master, the sinless son of God, the blameless man of Calvary, he was called a deceiver. And the word means a deliberate and misleading imposter. Now, if this was true of our Lord and master and of the apostle Paul and of others who have followed in their train, What can you and I expect? God knows whether or not we're true and genuine, however much we may be called deceivers and imposters. Anybody who says that the Christian life is an easy life will have the biggest surprise of their life. Some say, I won't become a Christian because it's the life of a sissy. Only effeminate people become Christians. I want to challenge the entire world that hears my voice, and anyone here, and anyone who hears in any home or any place across the metropolitan area of New York, face that, my friend, and you know what it is to really live the Christian life. But look again, known and yet well-known, unknown and yet well-known. Mark that, unknown and yet well-known. This could be translated ignored and yet recognized. This contradiction between obscurity and publicity is a real problem in the Christian field of service. Commenting on this, Dr. Harry Ironside says, I well remember how stirred I was when Dr. R.A. Torrey passed away. I was in New York and picked up a newspaper and then saw a two-inch item stating that Dr. R.A. Torrey, the great evangelist, had died. And in the same paper, there was a column and a half telling of the death of some movie actor. He was distressed. He was so distressed, in fact, that he hurried back to Chicago to find out if this was true. When he got back there, he writes, When I picked up a Christian journal a little later, I found column after column telling of Dr. Torrey, and there was no mention of the actor in that paper. And then Ironside adds, It makes all the difference which crowd you belong to. Unknown and yet known. Look again, as dying and behold we live, as dying and behold we live. How many times the Apostle Paul had been at death's door. I'm sure he was thinking of this particular instance when he was dragged out of the city of Lystra as dead. And everybody had written him off. And yet he stood on his feet, quickened again by God's Holy Spirit. More recently he had endured a similar experience mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 9. But I repeat, the more people thought he was dead, the more he seemed to leap to life. There are scholars, of course, who interpret this same text a little differently, and I'm sure both thoughts are here. Paul's willingness to die daily, Paul's willingness to accept the sentence of the cross upon his self-life so that self die and Christ live in his life. To our human way of thinking, this is a total contradiction. But in Christ, the paradox is resolved. But look again, chastened and not killed. Chastened and not killed. The psalmist could say, The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath given me power over death, there is an education of suffering to which every one of us must submit if we're going to know the fullness of God's salvation. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, and I read from chapter 1, verse 29, for unto us it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. And it's been pointed out that that word given there is the very word for which we use a gift, a gift, a rich gift that a friend hands over to you. Yes, God gives us a boon, a grace to suffer. We must never shy away from the discipline of suffering. Let us remember that the Lord Jesus, even though a son, learned obedience by the things that he suffered, chastened, and yet not killed. Look again as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Concerning our master, it is recorded that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet you turn over a few pages in the New Testament and you come across the verse in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. Where he rejoiced in spirit and he could stand back and say to his disciples on the very eve of the cross. These things have I written unto you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, the world outside regards this as another contradiction, but not so in the spiritual dimension. There is a place for holy sorrow, there is a place for holy joy. And both of them are part of the agony of our ministry the agony of joy, the agony of pain. Look again poor, yet making many rich, poor. Yet making many rich, Peter could say, silver and gold, have I none? And undoubtedly the apostle could echo that same statement again and again. What money he possessed, the apostle Paul earned by the sweat of his own brow. There were occasions when he received gifts from his beloved church at Philippi, but he had learned in whatsoever state he was therewith to be content, and because of this constant discipline, he was able to enrich others. This is a curious contradiction, but it's true to the Bible and to experience that the people who learn contentment in every given situation of life are the people who enrich others by their very influence in life. The supreme example, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he were rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And then the last one here, having nothing yet possessing all things, and this is not a repetition of the above statement, but rather the reaffirmation of a deeper principle, The genuine Christian, especially the minister of Christ, surrenders to a large measure everything he could have in the world. He surrenders his positions in the world. He surrenders his honors in the world. He surrenders his riches in the world. But actually by those self-denials, he's not impoverishing himself, he's enriching himself. For Jesus said, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And again, blessed are the meek who surrender everything, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek man is a surrendered man. And the wonderful thing about it is that in submission to Jesus Christ we're brought into the blessing of full salvation. Literally the verb means possessing all things to the full. And Paul reminds us in his first epistle to the Corinthians that all things are yours and yours are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul's language in this final paradox has found an echo in the thoughts and experiences of sages, saints, mystics, and Christian workers down through the centuries. To restate it briefly, it just means this, that when a child of God surrenders everything to Jesus Christ, he does in fact become an heir to the universe. This is the basic meaning of Romans chapter 8. The Spirit Himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we shall be glorified with Him. Glorified in what? In, listen carefully, inheriting the universe. What a glorious prospect for the true child of God. We have seen what is meant by the agony of our task. There are tribulations which create their own agony. There are obligations which produce their own agony. There are contradictions that affect their own agony. Indeed, there is such a thing as the agony of the task. But let us remember alongside of this agony is the dignity and the urgency and the gravity of our task. There is no other task to be compared with this. It's the task which is elevated to the highest heavens. Why? Because in this ministry of reconciliation, which is the heart of our message, this ministry of reconciliation, which is the task of our ministry, is a task, a job in which God the Father is involved. God the Son is involved. God the Holy Spirit is involved. The apostles and prophets and preachers down through the centuries have been involved. Shall we not rise to this honor then this morning and follow in the train of those who've served and suffered and conquered? But you say, how can I do it? How can I do it? How can I accept pleasure and pain? How can I know this agony not as something from which I shrink, but something to which I grasp because in the agony is the victory. How? At the heart of that total list as I pointed out before Paul puts the word Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost just as if he has built a great argument and right at the heart of it he's just put the Holy Ghost since everything is related to him and by his indwelling, his infilling and anointing I can match any situation come tribulations come obligations come contradictions i'm more than conqueror through him that loved us why the holy ghost so let us rise to take the holy ghost in all his fullness and prove him to be more than adequate for the agony of our task let us pray If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Our prayer this morning is a simple prayer, dear Lord. It's for this infilling and anointing of the Holy Ghost. And from the depths of our hearts we pray. For this we pray, Lord. For this we plead. Thy Spirit's fullness flood our souls. Be thou enthroned, Lord, within our hearts and all our yielded lives control. Then and then only shall we be able to face tribulation, obligation, and contradiction, not only with the agony of pain, but with the agony of joy. Grant this to be so in our lives from this moment onwards. For thy dear name's sake, amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's word delivered by my late father, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.